And I think many of us, especially those who've been saved for longer, though it seems counterintuitive, who've been saved for longer, think that we know Christ. And what we, what we mean when we say that is that we know about Him. We know what He's done. We know who He is from a historical, theological, redemptive perspective. And I want this morning for us to not necessarily move past that because we can't know Him personally without knowing Him theologically, but to move past that simply knowing about Him and, and truly knowing Him affectionately. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. To end the year, I wanted to challenge us with how we think about the previous year and maybe just encourage us and admonish us on some things as we think about the coming year. I'm a, I'm a New Year's guy. I do love, I'm a, I'm a goal person, I'm a list person, and, you know, so I love the New Year. And I, yesterday, I, um, uh, it was yesterday, I think, I told my wife, all right, so I'm starting something new next week. And my wife goes, okay, here we go. Because it's not even New Year's yet, and we're already starting stuff, right? What did you learn more of in 2023? Was there something in your life that you increased your knowledge of? A few things just personally. In regards to my own Bible reading, I, I wanted to learn the historical books of the Bible better because I felt like my, my knowledge of that genre of the Word was deficient compared to some of the others, and so spent a lot of time in the historical books this year, and it was truly a delight. Um, so much so that, that that's what caused our next sermon study. We're going to study 1 Samuel together at the start of a year. I learned that 30, the age 30, which I turned on January 25th, so my birthday is early in the year, I learned that 30 apparently brings obligatory physical limitations. <laughs> Things that when I was 29, I just don't remember being an issue. Pains in my back, shortness of breath, and us adults who play soccer every Monday at the church are even more aware of this. Just odd things. Like, why is that happening? Thank you. That's encouraging. As a church, we learned some things. We learned the book of Ephesians. It's a good thing to learn, amen? I learned something that it was really hard not to take personally. A few months ago, okay? 
So when my family left on vacation in November, we were behind in our budget on giving by about $11,000, okay? So my wife and my family, we went on vacation for almost two weeks. And when we got back, we were in a positive by about $3,000. So on the one hand, I say, amen. On the other hand, I say, hold up. Do I need to leave more often? We praise the Lord. We were once again reminded that the Lord's going to take care of His church and that you are a faithful people. We learned our core values as a congregation, things that we want to flow through the blood of our church, commitment to the Bible, corporate worship, Christ's commission, and congregational care. We learned about every three to four weeks another baby was going to be born in our church. Amen. Praise God. I mean, truly, um, what a work of grace and what a joyous inconvenience to literally have to add a wing to our nursery. Seriously, I mean, I, I, I talk to a lot of pastors. One of the things I try to do is just be an encouragement in my private life. It's just be an encouragement to pastors. And so I talk to a lot of pastors. And some of them would love, many of them would love to have that problem, truly. What a sweet work of the Lord to literally be growing our church with new life. What did you learn about yourself and about your Savior in 2023? Let's read our text together. Philippians chapter 1. We had read for us earlier one of Paul's prayers. You know that in several of his epistles, he writes what he prays for these people. It was read for us earlier in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 9. And this morning, we're going to look at Paul's prayer to the Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. I want to use this text, and I want to use it to frame how we think about this coming year. And I want to challenge us all with really just one basic idea. And I don't really have a, a stated main idea for you this morning. It's just I want this theme of knowing Christ to invade how we think about this coming year. That we would desire in all things as we approach a new time, a time of transition in our life, that we would desire to know Christ. Perhaps some of you are Christmas carol people. We're coming off of Christmas carol. And I have an invitation to you that Ghost of Christmas Present has, where he says, you remember what he says when Scrooge first sees him? What does he say? Come in and... Anyone know? Know me better, man. My invitation to you this morning 
is to come into Christ and to know Him better. And I think many of us, especially those who've been saved for longer, though it seems counterintuitive, who've been saved for longer, think that we know Christ. And what we, what we mean when we say that is that we know about Him. We know what He's done. We know who He is from a historical, theological, redemptive perspective. And I want this morning for us to not necessarily move past that because we can't know Him personally without knowing Him theologically, but to move past that simply knowing about Him and and truly knowing Him affectionately. And this is what Paul prays for the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi is apparently one of the more doctrinally correct churches. Paul doesn't spend any time correcting their theology. And you know, if you read the rest of Paul, he spends most of his time correcting people's theology, or at least warning about theology. The most theologically um, uh, emphatic part of the book is in early part of chapter 2, and it seems to be just Paul meditating on the humility of Christ. And what he then does is he sets that up as a model for humility in the church. And so he's really not even using the, the, the passage in Philippians 2 about Christ's incarnation as a corrective so much as a model. Paul's message, his, his letter to the church at Philippi is largely a, a thank you note for a gift that they had given him. And so the letter is warm. Now, he does give some instructions on unity. So apparently there was some disunity in the church, as is typical of churches, as was typical of this time. Even if there's not disunity, there may be disagreement, or there may be one person believing this and another person thinking this. And so Paul calls them to unity around the fellowship of the gospel, chapter 1, and the latter part of the chapter. But largely, this is a very warm book. It's a very thankful book. And so his prayer for them is that they would continue. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. I want you to know, first of all, in verse 9, the petitions of the prayer or the specific requests of the prayer, the petitions of the prayer. First of all, he prays that they would abound in love. So what is Paul's prayer list for the people at Philippi? That they would abound in love. Note that this love isn't specified. Do you see that? He doesn't say, I pray that you would abound in love towards me, or that you would abound in love towards one another, although I think that's probably the implication. So much as, or that's probably the the application, but the implication that Paul deals with is that love is to be the general mode of operation for all growing Christians. One commentator says it this way, the love is not oriented either towards the apostle alone nor specifically even towards one another, but love, listen, absolutely the inward state of the soul. So Paul, what he's, so, so what he's saying is, I pray that you, you grow in one of the immediate results of the gospel, 
one of the first fruits of the gospel. If, you were, if I were to ask you what should Christians do, hopefully your answer would be love. Why? Because this is the most intimate self-expression of God, His love. And so what do Christians do? They love. So he prays, he says, I pray that you would abound or multiply in your love. And again, probably the application is the church context. But he begins with them personally. You as an individual, I pray that you would grow more loving as Christians. Why? Because Christians are supposed to be loving. And above all people, Christians know love. Because they're known by God. And God is love. So if we use the phrase of the commentator that I just quoted for you, the inward state of the soul, how loving is your inward state? How self-giving is your inward state? Did you abound or did you increase or did you multiply in love in 2023? And do you desire to increase in love as a believer in the context of the church, as a spouse in the context of your marriage, as a family member in the context of your home, parent, child, older sibling, younger sibling. Because before we even get directly to the application of the church, he just addresses the the general concept of love. Are there measurable and consistent marks of increasing and abounding love in your life? Or did you grow in 2023 or recently in love for the world and its pleasures or love for yourself? You say, well, how do I know? Here's a few questions. Are you more peaceful, supportive, patient, and encouraging? Because these are the manifestations of love. Or are you more stubborn, unapproachable, easily provoked, and critical? Because these are the manifestations of self-love. Did you increase in love, and do you plan to in your future? If your answer to that is marked by, yes, but I also, and then you cling to rights for yourself, and you cling to things and criticisms that you're unwilling to release, and sins that you're unwilling to forgive, You do not plan to abound in love, and you do not have, you are not marked by the most natural inward state of the soul as a believer, which is love. But this love is is aided by something. Note with me the the second prayer request, so to speak, in Paul's prayer list for the Ephesians. The second petition He prays that they would grow in Christian learning. So he prays that they would increase in abounding love, and he he prays that they would increase in Christian learning with knowledge and all discernment. Note note how how this fits together. I want you to hear the full of, of the verse. And it is my prayer that your love may increase, abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So you can ask the question, what aids this love? What increases this love? What motivates this love? It's this idea that as you grow in your knowledge as a believer, you will grow in your love as a believer. This this idea is of knowledge is depth of 
insight. It conveys mental grasp of spiritual truth. Did you catch that? It conveys mental grasp of spiritual truth. In other words, to be a Christian, you need to apply your mind in understanding. It's this idea of knowing God intellectually and knowing Him intimately. It's made possible through His self-disclosure. You say, what do you mean by that? Do you know why God, do you know why you can know God? Because God has made it possible for you too. The Scriptures and through His Son. Since God has made Himself known to you, He desires that you would know Him. And so in the last days, He spoke to us by the prophets, but in these days, He's spoken to us by His Son. How do you know God? You look at Jesus. How do you grow in your godliness? You read the Word. How are you transformed inwardly by the, by the, the Comforter who is growing you, who is helping you understand the Word? If we fall into two pendulums where we're only focused on the love aspect of a Christian, we may build our life on unpredictable, unfaithful, emotional living. Where I do what I feel, and my perceptions are based on my feelings. But if we swing the pendulum and we only live with an intellectual aspect of knowing God and there's no affectional aspect of knowing God, we may just live as really dry people who seem joyless and with no burden for the lost. So we grow in knowledge of God and His ways. And as we grow in knowledge of God, as, we, as He discloses Himself to us and we come into knowledge of Him, we grow in our love. This idea of, this idea of knowledge is mental under, grasping of spiritual truth. And this idea of discernment is the ability to apply moral wisdom. The ability to apply moral wisdom. We make good choices on the basis of what? Our growing knowledge of God. Now this is not the only time that Paul is going to talk about knowledge. If you flip with me over to chapter 3, just one page over. This becomes a pretty important part of the entirety of the book actually. I'm going, to read, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 and make comment as we go along. So I know it's lengthier, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 of chapter 3 and make comment as we go along. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe to you. In other words, he's, I'm writing safe doctrine to you. Look out for dogs, so he's warning against false teachers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So again, he's warning against false teaching. Though I myself have no reason for confidence, or though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. What's Paul saying? Paul's actually going to appeal now to his um, exemplary self-discipline. 
And he's not doing it boastfully because he's going to go somewhere with this, and you'll see that in just a moment. But he's saying you can't put confidence in yourself. If anyone could, I could. And now he's going to explain why he could. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel. In other words, I was very, I, I went through all the immediate rites as a Jew. Um, the tribe of Benjamin, one of the respected tribes, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was righteous as to the law, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, how zealous was I, a persecutor of the church, as righteous as under the law, blameless. What's he saying? I could take confidence in the flesh because I did it all right. Checked all the boxes. Lived all the laws. Came from the right crop of family. Naturally had respect. So misled, he was, in his zeal, persecuted the church. As you know this, as, as he, remember what Acts, Acts 9 says, he, he went around breathing threats, ravaging the church. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. You say, well, what did he have to give up? We had to give up status. He was a very successful Pharisee. If you read most Pauline commentators, they say something like he was on the fast track to high priest. Right family, right tribe, right people, had the resources, righteous according to the law, which means he probably had some wealth because Pharisees did fine for themselves. They did well for themselves. He had notoriety because people respected the Pharisees. They listened to them. They were at the top of the Jewish totem pole. So when he says whatever loss I experienced, I count as gain, there actually is some loss here. Significant loss here. Now there's no, there's no biblical data for this, but some Pauline scholars think that Paul was probably married because most Pharisees were. So it's possible that he even lost family. Again, possible. What's he say? I count it as nothing for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. There's no joy or value that could possibly be compared to knowing Christ. For, whose, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as garbage, rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness from my own. So now he says it's not from my flesh. It's his righteousness, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, just to make it very plain, what he's saying in verses 10 and 11 is that he wants to know Jesus here as well as he will know Him in the next life. I want to know Him in His sufferings, the resurrection of the dead. Could you 
honestly say that you want to know Christ in His sufferings. Because we all want to know Christ when it doesn't cost us anything. We're all willing to love and grow into the knowledge of Christ if there's no self-sacrifice. But Paul says, I want to know Christ in His sufferings. Having known Him in the power of His resurrection, I may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in death. So this knowledge is an important part of the whole of this book. So you note that the abounding love is proportionate to the knowledge and wisdom. We grow in love for one another by growing in our knowledge of Christ. The deeper we go in learning Christ, the deeper we go in loving Christians. When we lived in Georgia, I remember this um, vividly. I'm sure because I was, you know, made to help with it. But um, when we were lived in Georgia, my mom decided that she wanted to grow some vegetables. And if you know anything about Georgia, especially the northern part, if you try to plant anything, um, you, you're basically contending with, they call it, it's red clay, right? We got that red clay down there. It's hard. Your, your chances of growing stuff in red clay are, it's, it's, it's very slim, okay? So we built one of those boxes, right? It's a 10 by 10 gardening, my parents are laughing, gardening box, and we filled it with soil, and we did all the things, and you know, the wire underneath it, and all that stuff, and we planted it, and we made vegetables. So we have this little tiny 10 by 10 garden, and we ate vegetables out of it. Now, you, and we also did what you do when you have a garden. You, you know, you give vegetables to people. But our giving was proportionate to the size of our garden. You understand that? If you were to put our garden up against, like, Miss Kathy's farm or the Cripes farm, our giving is much more limited in relation to their giving. Why? Because their field is subs- fields are substantially larger. And some of you are suffering in your relationships. And you don't feel like you're contributing to the church or being contributed to. And your garden is very small. Your knowledge of Christ is small. And you have no desire to increase the size of the garden. So, proportionately, your ability to contribute will be smaller. Because you can only give love out of the abundance of your growth. To apply it negatively... I can tell you something, people in a church, I can tell you something about people in a church who lack love, practice judgment, don't intentionally support and sacrifice for the body. I can tell you something about them. They are not growing 
in knowledge of Christ. Why? Because the immediate result is contribution. The giving of love. And some of you positively, and some of you, many, most, have walked with Christ for so long, and you've loved Christ so long, and you've learned Christ so long that that truly your field is abundant, and you are giving out of the love of that harvest. But loved one, if you are not contributing, if your, your, your mentality in church is critical, and selfish, and unapproachable, and like you know what's best, and everyone else is wrong, or is doing it wrong. Or you shy away from service because because you just don't know people well enough, and they don't know you well enough. That is more revealing of your love for Christ, and your knowledge of Him. Because you will give out of the abundance of your growth. You cannot rightly love Christians if you do not regularly learn Christ. And this is not just true of the context of the local church that I believe is in view in the passage. It is true of your home. It is true of your friendships. All of those relationships will be limited. Because as Christians grow in Christ, we give. So we note the petitions of the prayer. Abounding love and Christian learning. Loved ones desire to know Christ above all things. You'll note the purposes of the prayer with me in verse 10. The purpose of the prayer, so that, remember that that phrase, so that, always indicates a purpose clause. So that you may approve what is excellent and be so pure and the blameless, be so pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, don't disassociate these next concepts from the knowledge, okay? The knowledge is what's fueling the possibility for all of these things. It's not... Don't don't chop up the passage. Grow in love and in knowledge and in discernment. It is love aided by knowledge that makes all of these applications and growth possible. So that you may approve what is excellent. So first of all, you'll note in verse, verse 10, the idea of growing in prudence or wisdom. This is wisdom. Listen, this is very important. This is wisdom in our priorities rather than our pleasures, or more so in our pleasures. Sometimes when you and I hear the word discernment, we think, well, were you discerning with that music, or were you discerning with that TV show? This actually has the idea of our priorities. Another way to say this would be, so that you approve the superior things, or the things of first importance. So don't live for lesser callings when you've been commissioned by Christ. And what will distract you for living for lesser callings? Growing in knowledge of lesser things. And so, so first of all, the idea of prudence, and secondly, the idea of purity. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. 
This idea, or this word pure and blameless, literally has the idea of nothing hidden or covered. I did some, I usually do some woodworking projects for Christmas, and um, one of the things that you can do in woodworking is maybe you're gluing two pieces together, and maybe a cut or an edge wasn't done perfectly, okay? So you have this little tiny gap in the, the spot that's glued. So woodworkers, you'll know this you know, you just take some of the sawdust and you mix some wood glue and you make a little paste and you cover it up and then you sand it and no one ever knows, right? Some of you are really covering up the cracks of inconsistency, of self-righteousness. You're different at home than you are here. Your kids see you constantly in conflict and arguing and unkind, and you get to church and you smile, you put a face on. People think you're really respectable, you have really good opinions, but secretly, if people knew how critical and judgmental you were. Nobody says next, pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, why does he talk about this day of Christ here? He's talking about the day of judgment, the future day when Christ will expose everything. Christ will take out the scraper, and and, and, and it will be obvious what cracks were hidden up, what sawdust paste covered up massive issues of the heart. Literally, what Paul is saying is, live purely now so that nothing will be uncovered then. How is this possible? Grow in your love for Christ, and He will purify you. Grow in your knowledge of Christ, and He will transform you. He will make you sincere. I mean, it's an incredible concept. When you, it's, just, it's a simple idea, but it's truly incredible. Jesus will make you sincere. Why? Because there is no source of sincerity like our Savior. So, prudence and purity are accomplished by growing in love and knowledge. Note with me that this Prayer produces something, or this knowledge and this love produces something. How can we live a life confidently, purely, blamelessly, so that even when we stand before Christ, nothing will be uncovered? What is seen is what is there. We grow into the person of Christ. And how is that possible? Well, note with me, thirdly and finally, our last point, the production of the prayer or the producing, the idea that productivity, something is produced as a result of this growth, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So the first thing that this produces, that knowledge and love, that love with knowledge produces, is growth. And we've already talked about this, the, the overflow of our growth, but note what he says will happen. You will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And you've heard me say this a lot, fruit of the Spirit, 
you know, passages like James 3. And, and I, just, I do think it's important because it, it's very freeing as we think about our Christian life. When the new typically and, and usually of Paul, when he talks about fruit of growth, it's singular, not plural. Fruits of the Spirit is inaccurate. It's fruit of the Spirit. There's one. It's singular. Why? Because the Spirit grows a whole Christian. He's not like, okay, I'm growing in love, and then I'm growing in patience, and I'm growing in meekness. He's growing a whole Christian. Which is, which is very freeing as we think about our Christian growth. It's also very telling. Because it's inaccurate of me to say, well, I'm really growing as a Christian. You know, I'm really growing in love, but I just wish I'd stop blowing up at people. It's like, that's, that's, you're not growing. Because if you're growing in love, you wouldn't blow up at people. So as we grow the fruit of righteousness, it's Christ is producing a righteous person. He is transforming us to look like Him. This fruit is the outward growth of His inward grace. It's, you might put it this way. Remember that robe of righteousness that Isaiah talks about? It's literally like we're growing into that. Growing into the robe of righteousness imputed to us at salvation. You know, this, this picture of growth is constant throughout the New Testament. Just to quote a few. John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And what happens when you bear much fruit? And thereby prove to be my disciples. Paul mixes metaphors in Ephesians 9, For the fruit of light is found in what is good and true. James appeals to this terminology extensively in chapter 3. And he sets up a contrast of a culture, a, a, a producing of earthly wisdom versus spiritual wisdom. For where you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false, incons inconsistent to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly and unspiritual Listen, for where jealousy selfish, and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason. I, that one's so practical. It's so simple. Are you really stubborn? And when someone approaches you with an issue in your heart, do you hear it? How well do you take differing views and differing opinions? Differing people. The fruit of peace is open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, listen, and sincere, not covering anything up. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If you are causing disorder, in whatever context you want to apply, family, church, if you are apply, causing disorder rather than peace, the root of that is simple. You are not abounding in love and growing in Christ. And note with me what happens when this prayer is accomplished and the, and the fruit is grown and, and the Christian is growing in love and in knowledge and the fruit begins to, to, to flourish. 
to the glory and praise of God. So growth and glory. Do you want to know how to succeed as a Christian? Which, first of all, we need to define what that is. Succeeding as a Christian is not necessarily going to the mission field and leaving everything behind. And I mean, you can do that and be dead on the inside. Succeeding as a Christian is not people thinking you are the best parent and your children are the best kids. They might be. But vanity in that is failure. Succeeding as a Christian is not going out with evangelistic zeal and coming home and being a terrible disciple maker in the family. Succeeding as a Christian is living in all things for the glory of God. That everything in my life is vertically oriented. Remember we talked about this in corp- when we did corporate worship as our core values? Everything in my life is vertically oriented. Have a vertical vision for your life. That sounds like a really neat like mega church, but it's not. Have a vertical vision for your life. Everything is for Him. Everything. My money, my car, my children, my life, my breath, everything is for the glory of God. And how can you be confident that you will at least pursue success in living for the glory of God? How can you have confidence in this? Abounded love and knowledge. Grow in your knowledge of Christ and you will glorify your Father. Grow into the person of Christ and you will succeed as a believer. You will do what God put you on this earth to do. Live for His glory in all things. Remember I said that growth is an, inward, is an outward work of His inward grace and it causes upward glory. You say, well, how then do we do this? I want to be really, really practical in conclusion. Just really practical in conclusion. Three applications. First of all, and this one goes without saying, but we have to say it. Learn Christ. Learn Christ. Go to the Gospels. Read what he says to people. Get out a commentary and see why he does what he does. Do you remember the blind man that he heals in Mark? I can't remember the chapter. Do you remember that story? He doesn't say anything. To, or the, excuse me, the deaf man. He doesn't say anything to him. He just takes his hand. And he touches his hand. And he heals the deaf man. Do you know why he doesn't say anything to him? Because this is how they communicated with deaf people. And Jesus is kind. Jesus does things on purpose. And it's always pretty awesome. Now, 
Learn Christ. See why he reacts the way that he does. Hear his tones. Hear his affection. Hear his anger. Hear his judgment. Learn Christ. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Read deep or read wide, but read your Bible. In other words, take one text and go deep with it, or take a book and read wide, but read your Bible. Ask questions like, how does this text point to Christ? What does it teach me about the person of God? How does this text show me myself and show me my Savior? Ask questions. God will answer you. Read your Bible. Learn Christ. Pull out a commentary. Pull out a systematic theology. Learn Christ. Secondly, live in Christ's love. Live in Christ's love. And this is, this is reliant on you learning Christ. You will not just add living in Christ's love to your life without learning Him. You won't. So live in His love. Communicate that love. When was the last time someone, you said to someone other than in your family, I love you and I'm thankful for you. Love you. I'm thankful for you. When was the last time you said that to anybody outside your family? You say to people in the church? Put your arm around a brother in Christ. Men, put your arm around a brother in Christ. Say, I love you, brother, and watch him get really squirmy. Like, I don't know what to say. I'm thankful for you too, right? Live in Christ's love. We're at one with one another. We're at union with one another. Say it. Express it. Give of yourself. Live in Christ's love. Consider others more significant than yourselves, Philippians 2. How do you do this? You say it. You show it. And you give time to it. Is there someone in your life that you are giving the love of Christ to because you are regularly or semi-regularly discipling them? You're meeting with them. You're sitting down with them. You're discussing truth with them. You're giving them Christ's love by discipling them. And listen, I... I'm not just talking about example. Example's good. But I mean actually being in someone's life. Maybe you'd say, I need someone that, to do that for me. I need a discipler. Well, then live in Christ's love. Notice a man or a woman more godly than you and go ask them so that they can be Christ to you. And one day, you can be Christ to somebody else. You say it, and you spend time giving it. Husbands, are you giving your wife Christ's love by leading, by dwelling with her according to knowledge, by leading her in the Word? Are you leading your children in Christ's love by not allowing or tolerating sin in their life? So disciplining in love. And grow, thirdly, grow in God's glory. 
grow in God's glory. The glory of God in the Scriptures, the weightiness of God, the heaviness of God, the magnitude of God. Do you even know what it... When we say God... Seriously, I'm not... When we say God's glory, do we even know what that is? Much less how to reflect it. He has called us to bear His glory to a world that needs to see it. He's called us to be light in darkness. How do you grow in God's glory if you're not growing in the person of Christ and learning the person of Christ? And how will you rightly reflect that glory if you are not living out His love? Because God's love is His expression, His intimate expression of Himself to us. Take these three categories, admonitions, and let them invade how you think about this coming year. Learn Christ. Live in His love. And grow in His glory. Would you pray with me?